Welcome, dear one. These are Catalyst Conversations, and I'm Anya, a facilitator and leadership mentor, and the founder and guide of the Catalyst Leadership Immersion. This fall, I sat down to talk one-on-one with members of the 2020 cohort. They are some of the most wise, compassionate, complex, creative people I know, and I'm honored to share them and their work with all of you. Listen in as we dive into honest dialogue about what it means to use our businesses as vehicles for our values, as we show up imperfectly and courageously in our work, in this fractured world, making our way together. Today, I'm chatting with B. Miracle. In their own words, B is a nonprofit exec challenging anti blackness by day, a mama artist activist by life. B believes deeply in the power of stark contrast, trauma, and pleasure to create new black futures that free us all. I've known B since they said yes to joining the Catalyst Leadership Immersion last year. Their work and way in the world is culture-shifting, pleasure-inducing, rest-honoring, and creativity-catalyzing. B is a painter, a writer, an oracle deck creator, a facilitator of challenging and joyful conversations about identity and race. And B is nurturing a vision for the Gary a physical space and virtual community offering creative sanctuary to Black women and non-binary folks, and those seeking restorative room to decompress, heal, be joyful, convene, and create. In our conversation, we talk about centering pleasure while still acknowledging pain and trauma. We touch on the nuances of racial reconciliation, We talk about job transitions and what it looks like to allow our visions to shift and change and adapt to this time. I get quiet and listen to what B has to share. I invite you to do the same. Well, my dear, welcome. I am so, so delighted to be having this conversation with you, having any conversation with you. (laughs) And getting to explore and share a little bit about the work that you've been doing and the work that we have been doing together and all in between. All the in between. That should be the title of a memoir for 2020. (laughs) (laughs) That implies a clear end, which I appreciate. (laughs) Good point. Good point. And a clear beginning, which, you know, more and more, we're like, when did this start? And what is time even? It's all a blur. It's all a blur. All a blur. So A little bit of our own little uh, Groundhog Day for the fall as we uh, get ready to dip into the, to the fall here in our, in our hemisphere. So, you know, it's yeah. all cyclical. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful to be in a place with clear seasons. I feel like that is really helpful and really grounding. I think it's helpful for me just in this space of like recognizing that time is passing throughout the summer and all the glorious days. It was really easy for me to get sucked into, especially here in the Pacific Northwest where the days last forever. 
it was really easy for me to lose track of time and how long it took for things to happen and that time was even a concept, which in some ways was really, really good <laughs> to get unhooked from that. But here now with fall pushing in and days like starting later, I was infamously insomniac and, and unable to sleep for a long time. And so I saw a lot of sunrises this summer. Mm. And so now I know that like the sun is not rising that early anymore. And it's certainly setting a lot earlier. And it just gives me a sense of right urgency, not like just urgency for the sake of urgency, but right urgency around like, if I want to get things done today, then can't dilly and dally about it. I got to go get those things done. And because the light will not be here <laughs> that long. Do you find yourself pretty impacted by the weather and by light? By the light for days? sure. Yeah, light for sure. I just feel like I have so much more energy and time to do things. Although it's the same hours in the day, it just, it's different when, I mean, I don't commute now for work, but I work from home now. But when I was commuting, it's very different when it's super bright outside and the day feels like it's hours long when you're commuting at seven o'clock in the morning because the sun rose at like five o'clock versus being in the car at 6.30 and it's still dark out <laughs> on the way to the airport. And on the flip side, on the return home part, that really got me because during the summertime, I feel like, oh, I've got hours to like go do the picnic and cook a great meal and also run a couple of errands. Whereas now, particularly where I live, it could easily be dark, dark by four o'clock, 4.30 yeah. in the afternoon. And that just emotionally puts me in a space of like, well, now there's no, now it's time to go to sleep. So there's no time for picnic, for cooking, for any of this other stuff. And I recognize that I make very different decisions in that space. I'll go pick up the fast food instead of the like going home and cooking the slow meal kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Although that isn't to say it's all bad because with just a tiny bit of planning, I get to do the food that I really love, which is more slow cooker, cook all day kind of food. And especially now that I'm home all day, it's even easier to do like more elaborate slow cooker kind of meals, which I actually love. So it's, it's, you know, hit or miss. <laughs> Some days it feels really great and generative and other days the darkness can feel like, oh, is it ever going to be light again? <laughs> Yes, I can really resonate with that. I am really impacted by weather and by light. And I've found in recent years, what helps me feel my best during the winter is to really, kind of, like a give in sounds passive. It's an active choice, but to really just allow myself that rest and that quiet and that slowing down because here too in Portland, it's dark at 4.30 in the heart of the winter. And then I'm like, okay, I don't, <laughs> don't want to leave my house. Right. I don't really want to do much. And to just, I found that like giving my body more sleep and going to bed a lot earlier really does help and helps my emotional state for sure. I so resist the going to bed earlier as the like night owl. But yeah. what I have noticed, to your point, is the permission giving to mm -hmm. my body seems to be more at play during these darker months where, as an introvert, I'm 
totally fine with being up in the house. I don't know that I'm COVID fine with being up in the house for months <laughs> on end, but, but generally speaking, I am fine with like being in a place and settling into routine and doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Like that part doesn't get me out of flow, but that space of really granting my body permission to be like, okay, stop, like go to sleep. Like just whatever you're staying up, night owling, thinking, I'm going to get all these things knocked off my to-do list. Or I'm going to go paint that painting or whatever it is that like I have in my mind, finish that puzzle, right? Whatever I have yeah. in my mind, of, I'm going to stay up and do like, just be like, you know what? Tomorrow's a great day to do that. Tonight, mm-hmm. it's a great day to like follow my body, which is craving being in this like warm, cozy cave like structure and just like go upstairs and get in my bed and get under the blankets. Like mm-hmm. that is cool. Go do that. (laughs) Yes, go do that. Let's do that. (laughs) But I so appreciate that sense of both, I hear like a noticing of what you're actually craving and wanting and needing, and then a real permission giving to to meet that need. Especially that permission part, because a lot of times, for me at least, I find myself in a space where I'm like, oh, if only you know, the perfect conditions existed, then I would be deserving of going to my bed and climbing under the covers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's, that's something that's so basic that shouldn't even cross my mind that there's this, like, you have to earn it, and you have to be productive enough to earn it kind of space. And I feel like, probably because of the, like, just natural cycles of the earth, where fall is not a time of production, it's a time of harvest and getting ready to go to bed and settling in that it just feels more natural and right that I can give my body permission to not be productive, to like prepare for productivity that is Mm going to come a long time from now and not get so caught up on, well, what you didn't do and what you didn't produce this season. And so you're not deserving of having that straw. I'm a gardener, so everything's analogies to, <laughs> analogous to gardening for me. But like, I would never say to my garden, you don't deserve having that straw placed upon you to like protect your soils over the winter because you didn't produce enough tomatoes. Like, so why do I do that to my body and getting mm. out of that? Oh, thank you for that, B. That is just so beautiful. Of course, we deserve that coziness and that rest, just mm-hmm. like the garden beds. Mm. On this thread of permission giving, do you find that there have been other places in your life, in your work, in your leadership where you are granting yourself more permission or new permission? Yeah, I think there, one, I'm trying to get out of the I think because clearly I'm thinking while we're talking, but (laughs) this, this permission space has opened up like this whole new world for me. Right when I live in Washington state. So right when our governor was one of the first to like shut down our state and say, you know, you need to stay home and stay healthy. The second, the actual first full week, but second week of that order was when I started a new job Mm. (laughs) as executive director of a really awesome nonprofit, but I've never actually been in my job in the office with people. It's all been a remote job for an organization that did not believe in like employees working from home and remote work and stuff. Even though we're a community organization, there was a lot of expectation for people to be 
in their office seats. So that was a really jolting space to enter. And it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely delightful with the people that I get to work with. But it's a a space where right after George Floyd's murder and the unrest in the streets that followed it, that job, which was already a difficult one where I was taking over amicably, but taking over from a founding ED who was a white woman in a community of color that was really, our organization was really trying to transition into anti-racist ways of doing our work. And so got into an adamant place of like, we need to do a search process that will bring us a leader of color to do this work. So there was already some very explicit intention on the part of our organization. But after George Floyd's murder, it just was heightened in that it was like, oh, we have our first leader, our first executive director of color. And a lot of organizations are going through that. And it was at a time when a lot of funders, a lot of community partners, a lot of systems, most of our work is in the education system. But all of them were like, yes, Black Lives Matter. We need to like listen to Black folks. And as a new ED, I was already coming into a lot of spaces where I was like, "Uh, I'd like to listen and just like kick back and understand what the groundwork is before I like start proposing solutions. And Mm. the urgency of COVID put us in spaces where I had to constantly question my leadership style and what I said I was committed to as a leader. A lot of what I talk about is being in right relationship with community. And a lot of that is steeped in whose time are we on? Whose timeline are we on? Whose agenda are we paying attention to? And it was just a lot to process in those first days where it was like, how do you want to show up as a leader? And I get to asked, do that in a culture, a organizational culture that has so embedded and established. Yeah. And embedded and established, it's a 10 year old organization. So we've been around a while and following on a founding executive director who had worked to establish a strong culture in the organization was really interesting. And my own personal journey was that I've been so blessed in my life to get to work some really awesome, incredible jobs. And so I was at an organization doing work I love in racial equity work, where my job at my previous organization was to take people on sojourns or journeys to the South and do racial reconciliation work um, that was steeped in joy and pleasure as opposed to guilt and shame. And it was incredible work that I got to do there. And in coming to this new organization, I was now like lead and in charge of being able to really right size what our, what our anti-racist ideals and connections are going to be. So yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been an incredible journey to get to do the racial reconciliation work in so many different ways. But the last point I would make on this is, especially on the sense of urgency that I know a lot of us feel in these COVID times where it's like we either got to get the emergency funding out really quick or we just got to figure out like when are we going to go back to normal as quick as possible. The, the work that I signed up with Catalyst to do was much more around this artist retreat space in the Southwest, which if anybody's been to the Southwest, or even if you haven't, like the notion of slow down Mm -hmm. and pacing is 
something that is just so, I was craving it so much that I was like, that's what my next life work needs to be. Mm. I haven't really gotten that much craving, uh, that craving fulfillment from slowing down and whatnot in our current work, but we have slowed down in ways that pre-COVID I'd never thought were possible. Mm. Well, and it sounds like you have been able to make changes in the organization, like permission giving to the folks that you work with that enables, as you're saying, not the full slowdown, but more slow (laughs) spaces, less grip of the urgency, maybe. Yeah. And that's interesting because I came up today, actually. In my organization, one, some of the work that I had been doing with you that was really powerful because I had a pretty decently long transition. And I remember sitting in the car in the parking lot in Montgomery, Alabama at the EJI, the Equal Justice Institute, waiting for some of my folks for my last job to come back after they'd done a, a part of our experience. That was the tour. And I was talking to you about culture in our new organization and how we were very much tied into a like, go, go, go. We don't trust our employees to know when they need a break, when they need time off, all those kinds of things. And so one of the really concrete ways we had talked about was, especially when I first started and I was feeling super overwhelmed by just the back to back to back to back to back Zoom meetings where little tiny things like schedule 45 minutes instead of 60 so you have time to like, go to the bathroom and grab the drink of water kind of thing to what I think is kind of a seminal space that I've carved out at our organization around the when no meeting Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny bit of a misnomer in that I do take meetings, but I talked with our, we're going to switch her title up, but she's currently our executive assistant and helped her to reframe what her job was and the power that she held in her job because it's really easy to think of an executive assistant as like, okay, you hold the calendar, that's it. But the calendar is power. It's mm. such power. To be able to say who gets a meeting, who gets them in the like same week versus three or four weeks out. Like all of those kinds of things are the kinds of power dynamics I want to shift at our organization. And so she has done an incredible job managing that quote unquote no meeting Wednesday space and that She's the one that makes the decisions of like, do I break through that wall, (laughs) that fourth wall that actors talk about and speak directly to the camera (laughs) and say, girl, you're going to take this Wednesday meeting? Or do I say, I think I can decide that Thursday is fine for this and it's okay if it's next Thursday even. Mm -hmm. And so she's been doing a really amazing job of holding me accountable in that space. And it makes me think about accountability a lot. Like, we talk about accountability buddies and I, I personally am always like, how do I get more accountable to the things that I say I want to do and model? And I recognize that I have this presence in the world and certainly now in my new job as executive director, there's title and all sorts of other things attached to it where it's hard for people to like push in on me and be like, so you said you wanted to do X, but you're actually doing the opposite. Like, how does that work? <laughs> and so just actually ceding power as opposed to just advisory status to M. I don't want to use her whole name because I didn't mm-hmm. get from her. But And the transition of the title makes me feel uncomfortable calling her an executive assistant. But like, it's been refreshing. And today it came up because we have a new staff member, a pretty senior level staff member, who is wonderful, amazing but also very hooked in to, in order to be seen as successful or to be successful, 
you have to subscribe to these notions of urgency and stuff like that that don't serve any of us. And so she had said to us today, like, there's this meeting we've been trying to schedule with someone. And she said, you can have my Wednesdays. You can like overbook my, you can take anything on my calendar that's there and book over it and I can reschedule. And I immediately said to Em, don't book over none of my stuff. And <laughs> not even about a Wednesday. Like, and I said it in a jokey way because we have that relationship. But I think it's so important to like actually model and hold tight to that in ways mm-hmm. that are like organic so that we can be like, okay, is this something that really needs to change up? But it shouldn't be our first thing that we immediately give up that thing that is giving us solace and peace mm-hmm. because we're trying to accommodate all the rest of the world that has never tried to accommodate us. And so, yes, yeah, it's steep. (laughs) And, you know, I just feel like, especially as the ED in this role of leadership of power, that you can model that it shifts the way that everyone can relate to time within the organization. And I just, it's so beautiful to me how you talk about your relationship with M and the power that they have to kind of shape shape your calendar. And it feels so collaborative to me in the way that you're talking about it, that it's like you're all holding each other accountable for the ways that you want to be in the world and in your work. And it, it's you know, a simple, small thing, but it's so big. Yeah, it is. And I appreciate you reflecting back how you heard it because I've, at first I was like, no, it's not that collaborative. Like I trust her explicitly and implicitly to be like, handle the calendar. Like you, she know, but there is this like nuanced collaboration where she knows to text me if she adds something same day. Cause she's like, oh, she's going to be and back-to-back-to-back meetings, so probably won't open up the calendar to see that I added this other thing at the end of the day. So I need to, like, let them know that that's happening. But, yeah, there's this, I guess it's more implicit than explicit, but definitely there is a layer of collaboration around us knowing each other's anxiety points, each other's accountability points, because, like, if she's been trying to schedule someone on my calendar for three weeks and they finally get back, and they're like, I can do Wednesday at this time. <laughs> I, I trust her to make the decision that she'll make. And yeah. nine out of 10, the decision she's going to make is like, it's great to hear from you. How about Thursday? I just, her modeling of what it means to hold each other in loving accountability is, is, is everything. It's definitely helped me personally to get through a lot of the, just the drama of these times that have been happening, but also just then watching how we model respect for the calendar and respect for Miriam's power in decision-making and that, how that really makes its way through the whole organization has been really amazing and incredible to watch. Yes. It's really been a pleasure and privilege to witness it from behind the scenes too, as it's all unfolded. So we have chatted a bit about this really pretty epic journey that you have begun in the early days of when we started our our Catalyst work together. And I know that 
simultaneous to you leaving a job, beginning a new job, you have also been creating and growing this body of work and building an offering that you are have shared with the world or on the precipice of sharing. And I would love to talk about the Gary and talk about your Oracle deck and hear kind of what has been percolating for you. Yeah. So way back, so it's like years ago, but really at the beginning of this year, we're calling 2020. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about like, even before I had officially signed on to do the catalyst work, I was like, well, I'm kind of in transition. I don't know if I'm going to go to this new job as executive director or if I'm going to stay in my current job at that time, which was working as a senior director of like racial equity strategy at an organization that worked across the nation, primarily in the high school environment. And what I loved about the work, aside from the getting to take my internal team of almost 100 folks in smaller cohorts out to Alabama was this work that I got to do in racial reconciliation, which is different to me than racial equity or even racial justice work. And there's always this evolving ethos around how we talk about the work. But I got to do whole day training, if you would, in schools where most of the training, and if you could see me, I'd be having my air quote fingers up, <laughs> were that were actually really deeper conversations about the things we take for granted. And this, again, is pre-COVID. So back then we were talking about things we take for granted around like everybody knows what racial equity work is. And now we're trying to figure out like everybody knows what teacher is. And while I'd love the travel and I love the people I got to work with, both internal and external, what I was starting, I had started realizing it from the first trip that I got to take to Alabama, which is actually the homeland of where my maternal grandmother was born. And I never got the courage at the time when I thought I would be doing that job forever. <laughs> and I could do it next trip, always next trip. I never took the drive down to Dothan, Alabama, where my grandmother was actually born. I was mostly in Montgomery at the Equal Justice Institute. And even though I was relatively far away from her, closer than I'd ever been, but far away from where she had been born, there was something about the soil of Alabama that mm. just rooted me in ways that I was like, I want to know and explore my own family heritage and I want to explore my maternal bloodlines. And I particularly speak to maternal bloodlines, even though I am increasingly more comfortable with being non-binary because that's who raised me. I never knew my father, my birth father. I grew up with a stepfather for a while, but it was, it was the femme women, and particularly Black femme women in my life who, and even when I think about like uncles, like it was the ones who were really connected to their, their femme legacy line that really just grew me into the person that I am. And I think I'm pretty cool, but like. Yes, <laughs> I would second curious, that. <laughs> a serious, joyous, loving person who is Black and has experienced a lot of trauma and has continues to live in a society that, like, 
makes it its daily sport to traumatize Black folks. Like, there's just so much joy in Blackness as well. And so the last, call it, eight to 12 months that I was at my previous organization, that was, I had stepped into my new role for, I'd been doing the work, but got the title like four or five months before I made the decision that like I wasn't going to stay the year. And in making that, the previous decision of like this last year, I want to be really focused on doing racial reconciliation work. That's where I was like, okay, I'm in Alabama exploring my maternal lines. Like what would be, if I could make up my dream job, what would it be? And while I loved the work at my previous employer and thought it was dreamy, and I love the work at my current employer and think it's dreamy, my dream, dream job is to get people to stop working and just Mm. rest. And so my mother, who was Gary, that's what the Gary is for, was the epitome of um, exemplar of like working and being productive. I don't remember many times when she wasn't working. oftentimes two jobs to make ends meet for our family. I would, in traditional vernacular, we would say she was a single parent, but she wasn't. She had her mom who helped to raise us too. So I was raised by two really incredible humans who just, I revere every day and want to emulate the things that were really wonderful memories in my mind of them. So my mom was very big into like homemaking and not so much like let's bake cookies and stuff. I mean, she cooked the heck out of some food and was always <laughs> feeding folks related and not. Everybody was related mm. to us. So there's no such thing as not. But but she she would take, she moved a lot because we were poor and we were very connected to like income tax season is the time to get out of town before the sheriff comes to evict us. And so she would have these small duplexes or small rental houses. We very, very rarely ever lived in an apartment. We almost always lived in a small house. And she would take this little rundown house that the landlord really didn't care about was like, okay, you've got bad credit, whatever, I'll rent it to you. I'm not going to do any repairs. So I'm not worried about what I'm losing out here kind of thing. And she would just make these places into the most lush, beautiful, rest, respite spaces. Mm. And so when I think of the Gary, I think of so many different layers to what it means to like create a space for homecoming. Mm. And for me, it's the desert. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I've lived all over in the state, but something about coming home there, primarily because I am so familiar with so many parts of the city because of the what people would say was a poor experience, but I thought was a very rich experience getting to explore so much of the city through this traumatic kind of experience. And then my, her mother's mother was an avid gardener. My mom became a pretty big gardener towards the end of her life, but having enough space and land to just be able to grow foods that actually nourish us instead of poison us. And as an artist, my mother's, me as an artist, my mother's biggest dream for me was that I not stop creating art and get so consumed with like academics and books and like just like nose to the grind kind of stuff that I never made time for art. So mm. when I think of all the things that I love and consider cozy and home, that's what I think about when I think about the Gary. Mm. Yes, please. Can we go there now? <laughs> yes. 
We actually can. We, you and I talked some really great conversations about physicality, right? And mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit, I mean, it's probably a bit more than a bit, but it's escapism for me to be like, okay, I'm really overwhelmed with the physical world I'm in right now. So I'm going to go on Redfin, well, Zillow in El Paso, because Redfin doesn't exist there. But I'm going to go on Zillow and just like, find all the different houses that I would be like, yeah, I'm ready to purchase that house. Like once I fundraise to like get a down payment together and then take all the time in the world, like scouring the Pinterest boards and my own like Mm -hmm. walls and whatnot to come up with. And this is what I do for this space. And it's a very visceral experience for me of like, it's taking me out of my own physical environment to like, I mean, for better, for lack of a better term, so like this sense of calm and this sense of home and relaxing where I can just dream and imagine like, oh yeah, this is the kind of plant that would be over there and this is what would be in that corner and this is the color on the wall and this is what I'm making for dinner every night. And I don't really get that kind of liberty and freedom in my everyday. But we had a conversation relatively recently about like, what does it mean to be in the in-between, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go buy a house in El Paso tomorrow, although you never know, lottery, you know, get your tickets. Could happen. Um, could happen. It could it literally and I don't have to win the lottery to make it happen. I just need to ask the people because mm-hmm. folks are yes. so enthused by the idea that like being able to ask for help is something that is another one of like when I talk about like unhooking from urgency, unhooking from time, unhooking from this sense of like you're weak if you ask for help. Is something I'm actively working on as well, because to your point, like with the Oracle deck and all these other kinds of spaces, I'm a really great person at generating the ideas and then the follow through to like, and here's the Gary that you can actually book a room and stay at. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the space where I will need to tap my community to like make that happen. Yeah. And your community is going to want to show up for that, with that, with you. And you know, in the space of, like, I deconstruct a lot of things, like the whole asking for help space, the real easy surface answer is that it's not so much that I'm afraid that people are going to see me as weak and, oh, you need help. You're not perfect after all. Like, join my Instagram. You'll see, you'll see all the ways in which I'm not perfect. <laughs> but it's more that, like, originally, I stopped that it was the fear of being told no, of like really needing help and people being like, no, I can't do that for you. And having people out themselves as like, oh, okay. And not even digging into like, I can't do that for you because I'm struggling myself or I just don't have it to give it to you. But just like a more malicious no of like, again, kind of somewhat tied to the like, you should get this on your own. I can't believe that you ain't be, you, you can't do it. And so no, of course, I'm not going to help you to more of a, a gentle space of like, it's not right now. It's not never, but like, I don't have that $10 for you right now because have you seen COVID and like mm-hmm. loss of jobs and everything, but there's these other things I could do for you and taking the time to hear from my community that every single time I have asked for help, they have come through in ways that are honestly overwhelming, mm-hmm. overwhelming. And I think that is more the space of fear that I have around like, we're really conditioned to not, I heard this analogy once, me and the analogies, you know, I love them, but like, <laughs> I heard this analogy once that our emotions are like playing the piano and that we've only been taught to play with like four keys instead of like the whole keyboard. 
And I think of that a lot when I think about asking for help and how my community shows up because I don't even have the words for the emotion that mm-hmm. arises when I see people show up in the ways that they've always shown up every single time. My, my eyes do not d- deceive me, nor does my ears or my heart or my mm-hmm. soul in that when I ask for help, I know people are going to come through. And because I've seen that, I think that I often hold back on asking for help because I'm like, oh, I should save that for when I really, really, really need it. And that's the most backwards way you can think about asking for help. Mm. Well, and it strikes me too that in the asking, really trusting, knowing that your community is going to show up so fully, there's a, a sort of risk in putting something out there because it means that it'll really be seen and received, that you will really be seen and received in that. And so in a way, I feel like it makes, it makes the thing real in the request for help, in the inviting people into it. I agree. I agree so much. It makes it so real because people are like, yeah, I'm down for that. Let's go ride. Yeah. Oh, you were kidding about me stopping by (laughs) and like helping you. One of our other catalysts, I love every single one of our catalysts so much, but one of them in my cohort, when I was like, I posted... (laughs) Lots of my posts on Instagram are kind of cryptic, but really not. But I was like, yeah, I can't wait to clean out my studio so that I can get back to like creating big pieces of art. And one of our catalysts, one of my catalyst friends was like, okay, tell me what time to show up and roll through because I'm here to help you clear out your studio. So I can't wait for you to make big work. And I was like, this person would literally, if I was like, can you be here tomorrow? They would do whatever it took to be here tomorrow. Yeah. And, and that's overwhelming like... in a space where, sorry, I was just saying it's overwhelming in a space where I, I don't know everybody, but like, I feel like I've grown accustomed to being in relationship with people, particularly in COVID, right? Where people have real legit, genuine reasons for not being out in these streets, including like the law and health <laughs> and all the rest. But like, even before COVID, I just got so accustomed to people being like, whatever you need, I'll do it. And then just never following through on that. And so to be in relationship with a community of folks who not only are like, whatever you need, but will actually show up on your doorstep and do the thing that you say you need. Yeah, that it's unique. It's really unique and rare, I think, sadly. Yeah. And I hope that I, I do hope that that is shifting with COVID, with, you know, just this radically different time that we are in and just that we're seeing how much we really do need each other. Not that it's new, but we're able to see it differently, maybe feel it differently. And that we Yeah, really, and I think... Yeah, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that I agree that I think it's shifting and I think it's shifting in ways that like, I feel like we had become so connect, so dependent on technology as substitute for relationships. And as someone who lives in a, definitely an immediate community, but even a region where there aren't a ton of other Black folks, I'm the first that will often say, like, I'm online so I can be connected to Blackness and legitimize that and not have many people question me on it kind of thing. But something about this 
this COVID environment where, yes, the tool to get connected might have been, I'm pretty much only on Instagram, but like the tool to get connected might have been Instagram, but the actual relationship isn't the DMs that you're sending back and forth in Instagram or WhatsApp or text or Marco Polo. It's the, it, it is that you actually are taking time to develop relationships with folks. And for me, someone who used to be like, yeah, some of my best bestest friends are people I've never actually met in real life. Like I've just known them online. That still is a space where like maybe I met them online first as opposed to meeting them in person first, being great friends and then connecting at, through the tool. But that tool connects me and then I feel much more comfortable going and meeting people in person and being like, hey, like introvert me is going to a retreat <laughs> to go and meet up with these people that I've been in relationship with for a whole year. Like, how's that going to work? And it works out much greater in person than even online. And that's saying a lot coming from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, DM me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I think too, as we, as so much is virtual now, just by necessity, all of the ways that we can interact with each other, even without seeing each other in person, like sending, sending mail, making art and sharing it, bringing food to each other, just like all of those things too. feel so I love that nourishing. Yeah, I love that so much. And it really to your earlier question around like the Gary and how I started to talk about like getting beyond the physicality of the space is that at the time we were talking, it was lovely summer here. And we had tried to be a little bit intentional about like welcoming critters into our backyard and whatnot and making sure that they knew this space was their space as well. But I don't think I've ever seen as many hummingbirds as I did this year. And hummingbirds, like too many people who've had people who've passed in their lives because a lot of the commentary around passing is connected to hummingbirds and whatnot. But like my mother had passed three years ago now. And when I was in, when I'm in the garden is when I feel closest to her and had gotten my five-year-old and even to an extent my two-year-old, every time they saw a hummingbird in the garden would be like, oh, grandma's here. Mm -hmm. And so when we started talking about like, what are ways that the Gary can exist without it having to be a house in El Paso, right? And that's not a giving up on that because that will be the end goal. But like so much of the Gary is wrapped around like, I want to be able to have fellowship that and, and expanding even the term fellowship because originally in my mind, it's like monetary rewards for artists who are Black, who are femme, who are caring for folks and just need time to like tap out of capitalism for half mm-hmm. a second so that they, one can rest, but also can generate into like whatever they want to do and have the time and space to think through that. And so the fellowship approach was something I was going through, but like, there's so many different layers to what I want to do in that space that you've really been great about helping us model what it means to be remote in this space. And so we do have Zoom calls, but like, how we have Zoom calls where now in my day job work <laughs> as the ED, it's rare that I'm not like painting at the same time or yes. leaping stuff for a collage at the same time that I'm on many of my Zoom calls. And people are like, what are, are you, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just, you know, 
staying sane while I'm on this call and having my hands actively engaged in something that is pleasurable and joyful while we're having some really deep conversations. So when I think about the Gary and I think about the work we did in Alabama, we would take primarily mixed race groups to the Alabama space, primarily white folks and black folks, but sometimes white folks and black and non-black people of color. And I was really intentional about making sure that in this traumatic space that people were going to be experiencing, that we also were explicitly engaged in joy. So we would build Black joy altars, right? And so I think of a home where we're doing that, but I also have had the pleasure with the catalysts and then with another group I'm in of doing virtual Black joy altars. And when I first came into this, I was like, oh, it has to, has to, has to be, what's it called? It has to be in person. There's just something that cannot come through if it's not in person. And that's not true (laughs) in either all Black groups or in mixed race groups. It's just not true. It can come through online too. And from everything that you mentioned of like our catalyst sending lovely recipes and ingredients to each other Mm -hmm. through the snail mail, like that's totally, like that's one of the things I was like, oh, but virtually we can't eat the collard greens. Well, I could send the recipe for the collard greens. That probably yes. wouldn't send the collard greens themselves. But like there's things that beans, like cans of beans and being able to season them up and get to like understand with your mouth, like what it means to be talking about only getting the scraps from the garden and not the, the ripe, juicy fruits of the garden. All of that is, is space that actually can exist online virtually in ways that I learned really creatively through the Catalyst Group this year. That makes me so, so excited and ready for all of these different ways to experience the Gary and to experience your work. Do you have any upcoming ways that folks who are listening can tap into what you're sharing and doing and learn more about that? Yeah. I had a little delay in getting our website up, but the Gary website should be up, T-H-E-G-E-R-R-I, hopefully by the end of this week, but definitely by the end of this month. And it's a really simple tracking of what we're doing along the way to launching the Gary. And when I think of launching, I think of like launching the actual physical space, but there will be one of the sustainability kind of really neat approaches we're taking to building up the Gary is that in theory, the Gary is a residency, um, an Airbnb kind of space. I mean, it's COVID now, so you know, you got to think through that. But it's also a workshop space where people can come and take really phenomenal workshops. And I'm an artist, but also just a curious art experimentalist. So it's not just for people who are like, I'm an artist. It's for people who are curious particularly in the racial reconciliation workspace and want to come and do different levels of work in that. It could be that you're very beginner all the way up to like, I feel like I've been to all the workshops and we're still not there yet. So now what kind of Mm. space? And so small groups would come out to those and instead of just waiting until we open the Gary to hold those, we'll uh, have a year of fundraising that is everything from, you mentioned the Oracle deck. The Oracle deck will be the first fundraiser we launch. And these fundraisers are not just fundraisers to start the Gary, but they're also tests of like, 
is this a potential sustainable revenue stream for this this vision that I'm holding for the space? And so the Oracle deck will definitely be available by our, our last full moon in October. Um, lovely Halloween so that people can have them in time for the giving holidays. And I certainly encourage people to give more frequently than that. Like one thing that I've recognized in life, and I recognize that privilege pays a part into this in regards to like what I have felt in abundance in my life, which is love, that when you give and give and give, it just comes back tenfold. And so, yeah, that Oracle deck, um, I, I like to talk about the Oracle deck as I've been taking some really great workshops with this lovely artist, Melissa Fernandez out of California and their collage Oracle, like soul card workshop. And it was the thing that got me painting again this year in COVID year where everything was upended, including my studio. And so I couldn't get in there and paint big. I was like, but I can paint on my lap. And her workshops were super easy about getting me into that space. And so another one of the fundraisers will be a set of workshops co-presented with some really amazing artists so mm-hmm. that you can both support artists in real time, but also be supporting artists in the future at the Gary. So, so many really great opportunities coming up and they'll all exist on that website, but probably the easiest, easiest way to know firsthand, firsthand what's coming up is to follow me on Instagram. My main Instagram account is Imani Sasa, I-M-A-N-I-S-A-S-A, which means faith now in Kiswahili. And I don't post a lot to my actual feed. That'll be changing up some, but I do post a ton in my stories. So you'll get a bit of the everyday joy and life that is the two tiny humans Mm -hmm. that interest me to keep them alive on the daily. During summertime, of course, we had the garden. Now that we're going back into the the fall and my studio is clean, I anticipate there'll be a lot more art there. But I often hint at and tease out like these are the next things that are coming and it's a really easy space to find me and engage with me and to like book out anything before it actually hits 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 the streets as the youngins say. <laughs> <laughs> Your Instagram stories are a total highlight of my day. Like I just so uh-huh. appreciate getting to have a glimpse into your real life. And I feel like you just do such a beautiful job of sharing the fullness of who you are. And your children are like just such a burst of joy and delight. (laughs) Is that what we call it? (laughs) They're a burst of something. (laughs) They are joy joy personified. And I mean, I talk a lot about this notion of, there's a couple of notions. One is both of my children are from the South. One of them was born in Florida. One was born in Louisiana and they're both adopted. And I think about like the horrendousness of the adoption system, especially for black, black kids, for people who aren't familiar. Nowadays for a lot of adoption, both of ours were private adoptions and there's all sorts of terms and technologies we could go through. But generally speaking, we, we did not like set ourselves up with an agency that had, you know, 200 families that were looking for adoptions and then people come to them with children. We instead went the route where we had this amazing social worker here in Washington state who was connected to more of the last minute emergency situations where 
a family has at the last minute decided that they wanted to put their child up for adoption or the state is about to intervene. And we knew we wanted newborn children. So we that's the private route that we went. But in that space, right, like it's such a traumatic experience because especially in private adoption, oftentimes family law attorneys in various states will post to various places. You can get on all sorts of listservs, whatever the case is. And we were on the listserv for a couple of attorneys. And then they'll send out opportunities to you. And when you see what the cost of adopting children is, even though you know that there are some other factors at play, the cost of adopting Black children is often significantly less than the cost of adopting white children. And a lot of that is the very ugly, ugly nature of supply and demand. And so the notion that comes to me is something that one of my colleagues has said a lot is, particularly in the case of Black folks, but you can adjust this to whatever fits your, your, your situation. But as we sit here and fight against systems, be it adoption, be it education, be it healthcare, be it policing, whatever the case is, he often asks us to think about, do we love Black people more than we hate the white supremacist systems that oppress them? And I had to ask that in the case of adopting my children because I abhor the adoption system. But I was able to like work with two incredible families, one who we're in much more contact with than the other, but both of our adoptions are open adoptions and just really engage with a system that was abhorrent to me in ways Mm -hmm. that didn't leave these two incredible tiny human beings to languish just because. I had a philosophical difference with this really abhorrent system. Mm. And so sitting in that space of loving Black folks, and particularly this, these tiny itty-bitty human beings who like had done nothing wrong to anyone, had not even existed at the time that we were coming up with these contracts, right? To be able to be like, okay, well, now they're here, this earth side, living, breathing, thriving, I mean, you know, toddler woes, so they wouldn't say thriving every day, but because <laughs> everything's a woe for a toddler. But um, Watch your Instagram stories. You'll see the thriving. <laughs> watch my Instagram stories. You will see the woes that... <laughs> what was it the other day? Um, Julia was, uh, was disappointed that my eyes were not big enough to see the monsters on her ceiling that were terrorizing her. <laughs> And I was like, I just don't see it. And she's like, I don't understand why you don't. And I'm like, this is not something to get worked up about. We can work this together. But all to rambling say, like in that space of thinking about, do I love Black people more than I hate the white supremacist systems that oppress them? That is, that is heart and center to my deep commitment to unhooking from capitalism in the space of the Gary. And also recognizing that like you get a mortgage by like, paying money in most cases. And so it's this really interesting back and forth dilemma, dialogue that plays out every day as I think about how in loving Black folks and moving from this this traumatic experience, like my kids came out of the adoption system, which is a traumatic experience and still experiencing joy and pleasure in a life that might be filled with trauma and traumatic systems and traumatic colonizing ways that uh, there's still lots of joy and pleasure to be had in living full lives and not just living full lives, but like doing the work of racial reconciliation. 
And you have really offered that as such a generous gift to our catalyst work and cohort of really that inquiry, that exploration of what it looks like when we when we do center joy and center pleasure and bring that into conversations that are hard or challenging or, you know, addressing trauma. Yeah. And I think especially in this year, 2020, yeah, where just as pressing as COVID has been like the racial unrest in the streets and people grappling with like, what does this mean? There's a lot of narrative and dialogue shifting and exploring that needs to happen for all of us. And for me, why I talk about racial reconciliation work and joy and pleasure is that I think it it is difficult and it is hard for us to like address a lot of race issues because we're steeped in pain and trauma and shame and guilt. And we can't see each other as each other in that space. How that showed up for me in my day job was that uh, one of the school districts we work with was pointing out that, especially now during COVID, where teachers are in students' homes, right? Like they're not in a school building where they can have these political conversations and then the kid can go home and decide whether or not they're going to tell their parents about that really cool conversation they had because they know their parents maybe disagree or believe differently than them. And now that teachers are in students' homes, they're in a space where they're in a lot more vulnerable place to be able to have race conversations, for instance. And the school district was concerned more on the political part, but also everything's become political nowadays, right? From wearing a mask to caring about Black lives means you must want to defund the police and you must not care about rules and law and all this other kind of stuff, which for the record, I don't care about rules and laws that are set up to like purposefully disenfranchise people. But with teachers talking with students about this, they're increasing an uptick in threats that teachers are getting. And we were talking about it a lot, but at the end of the day, I was like, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what happens in this election, there are going to be a lot of disappointed people. And if we just start from the space of, disappointment, like we've all experienced disappointment, no matter what stripe we are, no matter what color, no matter what socioeconomic status, we've all experienced some form of disappointment in our lives. And I'm not saying, and and I'm saying that we should be empathetic to that disappointment, not necessarily to like why you're disappointed, but starting from that very humanistic space where we're like, I see you as a human being really disappointed about something. Can I offer comfort in a way that brings you out of that disappointment in healthy ways so that we can continue to fight this good fight of making America, like at the end of the day, we all want to make America great. I don't know about again, but like, we all want to make America <laughs> Let's great. start anew. I'm like, yeah. I'm black, so what's this again we're talking about? <laughs> yeah. when we're not again. <laughs> I'm like, Although if you like really think about those, right? Like we're so conditioned right now to pick and prod at each other and tear each other down, even when we're quote unquote on the same side, that we can't think through things like actually there was a time when it was actually pretty good for black folks in this country, right? After the civil war, during reconstruction, when we had all sorts of senators and judges and 
We had all sorts of black teachers teaching black kids. Like, I'm not saying that nothing was bad because like, that's never been the case in this country for black folks, but it was better than Mm. it was when we started doing some other uh, approaches to trying to get to racial reconciliation. And so not taking the time to recognize that is another form of erasure that is not helpful for us. And so nothing is absolute in this whole wide world. (laughs) I say nothing is absolute, (laughs) but (laughs) little is absolute in this world. And particularly when it comes to like racial reconciliation work, a lot of the narrative shifting that I want to do with the Gary and the work surrounding the Gary is around this notion that blackness is only trauma. Yeah. And is only something to be looked away from because it's shameful and it's dirty secret that we tell in our family that we don't want people to know about kind of stuff. Like I very much exist in the space of desperately needing us to change those narratives because I see these beautiful, tiny black humans running around my house. Mm. And I'm like, I want you to always feel that joy and mm. to always be that exuberant. And where is it that we start? I know where it is because I work in education, but like, where is it that we start to like tamp that down in you so that your curiosity is a problem because you're touching everything and that Mm -hmm. your exuberance is a problem because you can't sit down and do what I say. And I'm frustrated that you won't do exactly what I say, even though you're just being a kid and exploring the world. Like, where does that, where does that serve us? Right. And how do we really shift that in our Absolutely. in our relationships, in our system, so that we are not negating the exuberance and the joy? And I will say, especially for adults who is who I do most of my work with, although I, I would love the opportunity to do it with kids and in partnership with my kiddos and for teenagers and for young adults, but like especially for adults who get so far away from play. When I post on Instagram, the most engagement I get is when I'm playing with, generally it's Julia because John's asleep. He's, he's a child after my own heart. He's <laughs> all the time. <laughs> he's like, I need my 12 hours and some. <laughs> so I'm like, get it. <laughs> but like Julia, who's never slept from day one, and will probably never ever sleep. She like, we'll be playing late at night after John's gone to bed, which is late, seven o'clock, seven thirty. But we'll be playing and the most engagement I get on Instagram is when people are like, Oh my goodness, y'all look so joyful together. Mm. You're just like doing the most random things and it's just watching y'all's relationship and how you relate to each other and are just like super joyful with each other and you can tell that you love each other's company and that you're just exploring together and people will often end that with like thank you for letting me witness that Mm -hmm. and so that's why I'm so committed to like my racial reconciliation work being around demonstrating and letting people witness bear witness be witness and be part of that joy and that pleasure because even in a place like Montgomery Alabama where there are metal memorials swinging to commemorate lynching, which is probably one of the most traumatic things we've ever done in this country. Even in that space, we can still claim joy and pleasure and have ourselves be human again for a moment. And that's not in service of pretending like none of that pain exists or that there shouldn't be shame or there shouldn't be guilt or 
that there wasn't trauma. Like all of that exists in the same space of like, and we can go to that one Mexican restaurant and cut it up <laughs> and yes. we can build this like joint altar and we can go and run our fingers over the veins of a collard green leaf in the mm. backyard kind of space. And so mm. that's, that's the Gary. I want to wrap all that experience into the Gary. And as I, when I'm dreaming really big at night, I'm like, okay, so that's the first Gary, but where else does she go? <laughs> where else yeah. does she exist <laughs> in what way? Because I definitely believe in the journey to a place. I think that's super important. And so to get to Montgomery, Alabama, people would have to, they didn't have to. Some of them could just like fly into Montgomery. Although even the flying into Montgomery is a like plane change onto this little itty bitty plane kind of thing. But most of us would fly into Atlanta and then drive from Atlanta to Montgomery, which is about a four hour drive. And so time zone changes and all it included. And so that journey part is just as important as the being there and experiencing. And so the Gary in the Southwest desert that people have to journey to is something that I'm committed to, but also there are other places that people can journey to. And so really finding those places that resonate as homecoming and being able to like seed these really amazing rest restorative places is, is the work I want to do. Oh, Yes. And it's the work that is so, so, so needed. B, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. What a pleasure to get to so rich. I know. I really feel like we could just talk for hours and hours. (laughs) That part. (laughs) (laughs) I want to leave folks with your really potent question in closing. I do. I do. As we talked about like understanding where our core, our core beliefs and values were, a question that I'd love for people to think about is, as we've heard from our conversation, I'm very deep, deeply in love with doing racial reconciliation work. I am descended of enslaved people from the South. And so the question that often runs through my mind is, what if King Cotton and Queen Sugar's offspring was a child named pleasure instead of a stillborn nightmare named trauma. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly very, lots of analogy in there and like, what does this actually mean? But I, I think the, the really simple way to think about that is, especially if you know your geography, like King Cotton is very much like when you think of slavery, that's what most people think about is picking cotton. And Queen Sugar right next door in Louisiana where a lot of people nowadays will go to NOLA and they're like, oh, it's so quaint. Like the quaintness and the insidiousness of slavery was that cotton cotton was nowhere near as dangerous to pick and process as sugar was. And so what if these two who were married in this slaved entrapped kind of process of building this country, instead of producing this nightmare named trauma that keeps regenerating and it's stillborn and you keep trying and trying and trying to birth a new, a new reality. What if they actually got to have a child named pleasure? What would that look like? What would that mean to racial dialogue in this country? What would that mean to what you personally believe about blackness and how you and I show up in anti-Black ways in this country. Like if pleasure were what we centered Blackness on instead of trauma, what would that mean for this Mm. country, for you, for your family? Yeah. Mm. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Mm. I love you so much. It has been really just so <sighs> good to connect with you in this way and hear about your journey and the journey that continues. I love you so much and am so grateful that you were part of my life for 2020 especially. <laughs> I don't know how I would have gotten through this year if it weren't for the gentle, beautiful accountability of the way that you're like, hey, how about we jump on that call and talk about this thing and <laughs> let's get our one-on-one scheduled. And also we have our Thursday sessions. So just the, the container that you have created. <laughs> Robert and I talk all the time about like, who's going to do counseling and what, what does our insurance cover? And I'm like, our insurance rarely covers the counseling we want. And I'm like, this was the best investment I could have ever made and have ever made. And mm-hmm. my dream tending and just my like being able to like process the shit show, <laughs> quite frankly, that yeah. has been 2020. Well, I am so grateful to be a part of it really and truly. (sighs) Thank you so much for joining us for this Catalyst conversation. I would love to know what's resonating for you or what new questions this conversation inspired. Also, the next Catalyst Leadership Immersion will begin in January 2021. If you're feeling the call to circle up in beloved community, to catalyze your heart work, and to contribute your unique remedy into this fractured time. I hope you'll join us. You can learn more via my website, anyahankin.com, and I'd love to connect over on Instagram. I'm at Anya Hankin. Extra special thanks to my friend Robin Jackson for the music and Brooke Bradford for podcast editing and to the catalysts who have shared their truth here, and to you for listening in. I look forward to continuing the conversation.